Welcome to the Runners Connect Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Tina Muir. Hello, this is Tina Muir, and I would like to welcome you to another episode of the Run to the Top podcast brought to you by Runners Connect. It means a lot to me that you have chosen to listen to this podcast today, so thank you for taking the time to tune in. Runners are continuously searching for answers. We always want to know what we can do to get better and how we can keep on improving. I don't know about you, but I always love learning from the experts to find out just what they have discovered throughout their careers. At Runners Connect, you know we are all about the science. We love to dive into the research and give you the most up-to-date findings without the bias. My guest today is a well-known writer for Runners World who also does the same thing. He has been on the podcast before, but has so many insights that I thought he would be a great guest to have on the show again. I had the opportunity to ask some questions that I have always wanted to know the answers to. I am sure many of you will have wondered the same things. Well, I hope so anyway. This is an interesting interview, and I'm sure you will learn many practical tips that you can take to improve your running in the future. My guest today is Alex Hutchinson. Alex is a former physicist, lifelong runner, and science journalist who writes for Runner's World in his blog, Sweat Science. He also writes for The Globe and Mail, The New York Times, The Walrus, and more. He is the author of Which Comes First, Cardio Awaits, The Fitness Myths, Training Truths, and Other Surprising Discoveries from the Science of Exercise. His blog, as I mentioned earlier, Sweat Science, looks at what the evidence shows. It's what Runner's Connect is all about, and it looks at the studies and evidence within the running world to show you what really is true. Alex is a National Magazine Award winner. So on to today. Today, Alex and I are going to discuss why you need to balance the science and artist within you to get the most out of your running, the importance of responding to intuition, and why you should consider not not taking measuring tools with you on your runs to force you to listen to how you feel. Why Alex thinks the running will kill you claims keep coming back into the limelight. Why caffeine, creatine and beta alanine are three supplements you should consider taking to improve performance. How caffeine affects the body and when you should take it. An interesting discussion Alex and I had about whether coffee drinkers should stop taking caffeine the week before the race to get the maximum effect on race day. I think many of you will be really interested in that one. Why middle distance runners should consider beta alanine to improve their finishing kick. Why stacking performance enhancing products will not necessarily lead to multiple performance improvements. This was a really interesting one. I think you're going to enjoy it. And why what has worked for you in the past will work for you less and less as time goes on. And why you need to continually look for new workouts to add into your training. All of the outside sources and a link to Alex's blog and his book will be in the show notes at runnersconnect.net forward slash rc52. All right, that's enough from me. Let's hear from our expert. Welcome to the Run to the Top podcast, Alex. Thanks, Tina. It's good to be here. We're very excited to hear what you have to say. So you have been on our uh, Run to the Top podcast before, um, but for those people who may not have listened to that before, could you just give us a quick brief overview of your running history, where you came from, um, just a little background? 
Yeah, I mean, these days I'm a I'm a science journalist writing about the science of fitness and running, uh, and and the way I came to that is uh, like I presume everyone listening to this podcast, I, I was a runner. Uh, I ran th- through high school and university and, and and beyond. I mean, I still I still run, of course, uh, pretty much every day. Uh, I I competed initially at middle distances. I was a 1500 meter runner and later a 5000 meter runner. Um, and I, I got to a, sort of a national level. I, I, I ran on the Canadian national team for uh, for a number of years in in, in track and cross country and, and a bit of road running. Um, yeah, and and then meanwhile, I was also studying science. I was a I was a physicist initially. Uh, did grad work and uh, and was a, a researcher for a few years before deciding I wanted to come back to, to journalism. And uh, uh, so. The goal was to combine the two things I was I was interested in, which was science and and running, or at least sport in general, and that's that's what I've been doing for the last decade or so. Okay, that's great. And actually, I love to hear that you kind of followed your passions rather than you know so many people would kind of stick. Once you know you went through all that trouble to get the degree and the uh, you said you had a doctorate, so you did your PhD. Um, yeah. You went through all that, and then most people will be like, well, you know, I've come this far, I'm going to stick with it. But it's good that you followed your dreams, followed your passion and your heart, and actually went for what you wanted rather than, you know, just because you put in that time doesn't mean it, it has to be what it is. So that's good to hear. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, and certainly in hindsight, I can say it was the right decision. It was definitely a, a, a leap into the unknown at the time. I was 28 and, mm-hmm. and working as a, as a researcher when I decided to go back to and do an, an, a degree in journalism and, and uh, kind of kickstart a completely different change. And it's, it's worked out really well for me, you know, I, um, in terms of having a chance to, to spend my time thinking about things that, that I find really interesting. Um, you know, who knows, I, I might have been very happy staying in physics too, but, uh, but I'm, I'm glad I took the leap. And, and I, when, when people, I, I, when I talk to younger journalists or younger people who are trying to figure out what they, what they want to do, I, I do encourage them to, to, uh, you know, to be bold and, and, and take, take chances sometimes. Oh, yeah. It's like one of my favorite quotes is life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And you're the perfect example of that. So it's good to hear. Um, so as you were, as you said, you were a former physicist, does that mean your mind is like naturally looking for the evidence and logic behind things? Do you find that when it comes to running topics, you kind of are looking for the reasons behind that? Do you think that played a big part in why you, you know, you do you do write for sweat science for runner's world, which is obviously the science and the actual findings part of, um, runner's world. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I would say the, the truth is my, the, the actual years I spent, uh, studying physics, they, they, they surprisingly have, uh, don't do a lot for me on, on a practical level, but so, but it trained me to, th- in terms of a way of thinking, uh, uh, you know, l- looking at causes and effects and, and, and analyzing studies. That's also a personality trait, I think, too. And, and it's, it's interesting when I talk to runners, um, a lot of runners do have this sort of mindset where they're really interested in understanding how things work, why things work, whether things work. But not all runners do. A lot of there are also lots of people who uh, are really, um, you know, less interested in the numbers and the, the the theories and the experiments, and and more just want to follow their intuition. And I think there's you know there's no problem with that. And I think there's um, there's different ways of approaching running. But for me, and 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 you know, the truth is, I I don't think anyone should should let themselves get too far uh, along the ex- either extreme and i know f- for me as i've gotten more interested in looking up the evidence behind you know whatever whether it's ice baths or or certain types of interval sessions 
um, as a as a quote unquote scientist, I find that really interesting to try and figure out. Okay, what do we know and what don't we know? But if you want to be a runner, uh, there's a, there's a point at which you have to put away the the you know the investigative role and just say, all right, we're going to go with the information we've got, and we're going to try not to um, you know get caught up in all the doubts of am I doing this exactly right or is this the scientifically proven thing? Sometimes you just got to do it. So I think I think all of us have to keep a little bit of the scientist and a little bit of the artist in, in approaching running. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's one problem, especially when you start running, you kind of tend to get a bit carried away in all the science and what you need to be doing and what this place says you should be doing. And you almost the kind of uh, too many cooks in the kitchen spoils it kind of uh, scenario where sometimes you just need to listen to what works for you. And especially, I mean, I know we write a lot of articles, uh, Runners Connect, about um, easy running and how you have to listen to your body. And people really struggle to understand, well, what does, what does that even mean? But it is something you've got to really work on to listen, like you said, to your intuition. Absolutely. And I think it it's funny that two things. One, the more the more I've read and, and learned about the, the science of training, uh, the less I believe the details matter, the less I believe it really matters whether you're taking a minute rest or a minute 15 rest or whatever, uh, the more I think it's really just comes down to you have to challenge yourself and whatever it takes to challenge yourself, whatever the specific details of the workout is. And also in, in terms of learning to, to respond to, to intuition and feel, um, again, I, I'm a guy who loves technology. I, I like uh, and I love numbers. I love tracking things. And I, I think that's not uncommon among runners. But I, I, you know, I don't run with any sort of uh, technology with me other than a stopwatch. Um, and it's not that I don't think there's a role. It, there's definitely can be useful role for things like uh, GPS and, and heart rate monitor. But I think uh, you really have to make sure you don't outsource all your ability to monitor your body. You have to make sure you can listen to it. So for me, knowing that my tendency is to love to track data and 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 measure everything i can i fight against it by not bringing any measuring tools with me and forcing myself to say the only thing that's going to tell me whether i need to go faster or slower is how i'm feeling Mm -hmm. i think i think that's something that takes a long time to learn but it's it's good that you've learned it i'm still on my way there so maybe in a few years we can have a conversation and i'll be there with you (laughs) yeah well the the easiest way to uh to to learn that is to to be old uh, (laughs) and you grew up before gps was around so i I learned to run by field because that's all that was my only choice so it's it's you know it things do change and i don't mean to sound like a like a dinosaur here oh no 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 i'm sure i'm sure a lot of people will understand what you're saying there and uh (laughs) <laughs> it's interesting to hear. So is there something about running that you would say you can pick out in particular that absolutely fascinates you? Is there something, is it be it science-wise or just in your passion that you feel is uh, particularly interesting about running? Uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, there's there's a lot of... And, and if, if, if I think about what attracts me to running or what, what it is that I find interesting about it, I... I think this, the science aspect of it, which I find, which is sort of my professional uh, livelihood now and, and the way I spend my days, is actually quite different from the, the reasons I go out and run on a daily basis. And, and for me, that that's a, uh, running is a lot of things, but um, one of the things that I find most attractive is, is its simplicity. And so for me, um, I go out for a run and after an hour, all the things that have, that are spinning around or have been spinning around in my head uh, are, are you know think the worries and the stresses and the the, the the day-to-day life things that those are gone and and that's really 
probably the number one uh, thing for me is this just a, a, an area of simplicity in my life uh, and also an area of challenge that, you know, and, and all, I could keep mm-hmm. talking for, for half an hour because there's all the other things that I feel when I get back from a run. But, but uh, yeah, it's just something very simple and, and uh, satisfying. Yeah, it's just that something that I, I like to hear different opinions from people because everyone has their own reasons for running and I think it evolves over time. So even within one person. So it's always interesting to hear people's thoughts on that. Um, so when it comes to your writing, uh, I love, and I'm sure a lot of people, other people listening do, uh, that you are so honest and open in your writing and you like critically assess what the data actually shows, uh, which we like to actually do as well at Runners Connect. Um, and in your, you wrote a recent article about how the media continues to regurgitate some of the same information again and again and finding a new way of looking at it about how running is going to kill us. Um, do you think there's a reason people are always looking for a way to make running be a bad thing for you? Do you think there's some reason for that or do you have a theory? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a few different things going on. Um, from the perspective of a journalist, um, you know, but when I first started as a journalist, I, I spent a, a year and a half working at a, at a newspaper, uh, sort of not writing about running, but writing about whatever I needed, needed to be. I was a general assignment reporter, and and so I, I understand from that perspective, you're always looking for something that's that's counterintuitive or surprising. The and and these stories where it's like you thought exercise was good, was good for you, but it turns out it's bad for you. Uh, it, you know, it's a natural. It's it's a it's a uh, you know a man bites dog story, and so of course it's going to get picked up. And it, you, you know we can we can say it shouldn't, and journalists should know better than that. But I I honestly can't see any way <laughs> of, of avoiding that because because if you don't write the story, someone else will, and they'll get you know that story will end up on the front pages. Um, so I sympathize. You know, I, I'm I'm critical of some of the journalists who have covered it, especially the ones who've covered it repeatedly and and should know better by this by this point. Uh, and I think some of the some of the journalists who have covered it have have gotten the message and are writing it in a more nuanced way. I think some of the Wall Street Journal stories, the early ones, were quite bad, or at least were uh, maybe a little credulous, and and they've gotten better. But I think this story in particular is a little different from just any uh, surprising story because it has that element of for, for you know, exercise is this hugely guilt-laden thing in our society, and uh, even runners, but certainly most, certainly the general population, everyone feels they should be exercising more, uh, and and there's a perception that, and I don't think it's fair, but there, there's a perception that runners are a little bit self-righteous about their, uh, you know, their wonderful fitness routines, and I think I think a lot of that is. I'm, I'm sure there are some self-righteous runners, like for mm-hmm. sure, who, who are very smug about how wonderfully fit they are. But I think a lot of people just feel insecure when they see other people doing something that they maybe they think they probably should be doing, but but aren't doing. And so then to to have this news that actually all these people who thought they were so wonderful and God's gift to fitness are actually killing themselves. It's just a you know it, it's it, it's totally understandable from a human nature perspective that these stories have have gotten so much attention and you know the only thing we can do about it is is try and make sure we're understanding the stories correctly and also you know i should not not to meander off the point but as runners we have to not just dismiss these stories as, as sour grapes we should be open to them and 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 read the studies and, and try and understand what they're what they're saying and and let the let the evidence guide what what conclusions we draw from them and and, and try and put those conclusions in context um 
and go beyond the headlines. I mean, this is this is a this is a, a problem that goes beyond this story. This is just uh, in, in in how we uh, hear information from the media. Uh, the headlines are rarely the full story. Oh yeah, I think it. I think it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because you know, you know, the reason that you come up with these headlines or people come up with headlines is, you know, they want to sell. They want to put get their name out there, get the brand out there. So you're going to pick a controversial title. You're going to pick something that's going to make people pay attention. But like you said, I think a lot of the time, I know we have had some articles where we've asked a question and actually the findings are um, positive, but the headline may be negative because, you know, you don't, you want to get the attention. You want people to actually read it. So um, now that that's an excellent point. And I was going to say, I'm sure, I'm sure you have the same experience as I do, which is because I, in most cases, I don't get to write my own headlines, and, and often I find them very frustrating. Mm-hmm. But I do write my own headlines for for my blog, and you know I, I'm human. I, I, w- I want people to read my articles, and so it's it's always a, a sort of balancing act between writing a headline that will catch people's eye, that will perk 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 up the interest of the reader, uh, you know, that will raise it, you know, ask a question rather than answering it, and then in the article itself give a full balanced view but sometimes i get people to say you know that headline was a little bit misleading and you know it or you know a little bit sensationalist and i'll think well maybe you're right but at the same time you know i you know my my defense is don't don't judge or, or twitter is another classic don't judge my my analysis based on the tweet mm-hmm. if, if if you want to understand something you need a, more than 140 characters and i've written the blog entry but so it's it, it's it's a it's a dilemma we all face and so i don't you know i think we all understand that we're trying to strike a balance between, uh, you know, getting attention and and uh, and uh, you know, but also being honest and not misleading. Yeah, great point. And especially when you know, if you hadn't have had that headline, would that person have actually clicked through to the article? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a difficult balance. Um, so let's switch topics a little bit and uh, talk about um, performance enhancing op- uh, drugs, uh, op- opportunities people use. Um, and uh, as this is a topic that obviously is in the media quite a lot right now, and I know you've done a fair bit of research about it. Um, so in a recent article, I think it was in the New York Times that you did, you talked about um, the gray area. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that, just how um, it's sure. difficult to explain? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, it's easy to, 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 to say, well, at least, in my opinion, there are some things that it's very easy to say they should be banned, and and uh, um, you know, drugs like steroids and things. That's, that's not that's that's cheating, and that's that's uh, pretty simple. But there's a lot of things we do that improve performance, and and you know, to be honest, probably ninety percent of the questions I get from readers are about tell me if this pill will make me faster, or tell me if that pill will make me faster, or this you know whatever drug or or. Uh, or food, or, or, or technique. Um, and so, you know, so beet juice is one of the big things over the last five years, say. Uh, and it's hard to, 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 it's hard to tell yourself that beet juice is unethical, right? Like, it's just a, it's, it's a beet, and it's, it's ground up into juice. Why, why would it be unethical to take beet juice? Then you can say, okay, we figure out that it's the nitrate in, in beet juice that's, a, that, that's such a good thing. So is taking nitrate pills, uh, is that, Cheating. Well, it's not cheating because it's not against the rules, and and the definition of cheating is violating the rules. But, um, you know, so it, it becomes a very difficult, uh, um, like drawing the line 
about which pills are allowed and which aren't is is a very complicated thing. And there's there's a, there's a whole debate about how the World Anti Doping Agency ch- chooses what's dr- what's illegal and what's not. And t- t- uh, you know they have criteria of, of whether it enhances performance, whether it uh, can be harmful to health, and whether it violates the spirit of sport, which is a very vague thing. And I guess the the point that I like to make. Well, there's, there's two points. The point that I was trying to make in that New York Times article is that uh, it's 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 foolish to imagine that we'll ever have some simple line that tells us automatically, oh, of course all of these things should be allowed and of course all these things should be banned. Uh, it's always going to be a gray area. So the only thing we can really hope for is or or, or do is let's make a list of what of what what's allowed and what's not, and then let's just follow it. Yes, you could argue that maybe uh, high doses of caffeine should be banned, or you, conversely, you could argue that some of the things on the banned list shouldn't shouldn't be banned. But that's an endless argument. So we can we can what ultimately what we just need to do is all play by the same rules. You know, you could have the hundred meter dash, you could have the hundred and five meter dash, you could have the ninety five meter dash. All of these are would be interesting races. The, the important thing is we just agree on what is. Uh, the standard distance that we're all going to race. And similarly, what are the standard performance enhancing aids that we're going to permit? Beet juice is allowed. Caffeine is allowed. Steroids aren't. Now, the, the other, just to, to jump topics a little bit, the other thing that I would say is that although I spend a lot of, I'm interested in, in what are the ways we can enhance performance? You know, what does beet juice work? And I think the evidence, is yes for most people, at least uh, in, in certain contexts. Uh, there are very few of these things that actually work. Most of the there's a vast literature of dr- things that people have tried to enhance performance. There's a few things like caffeine, uh, creatine, beet juice, beta alanine. There's a few that that really seem to work. I will say though that I, I've been running for almost 25 years now competitively, and I've never used any of those. Um, you know, I, I I would say had I been, you know, knocking on the door of the Olympics, I would there's some of those I would have tried beet juice and things like that. But certainly now, when I'm competing against myself, um, they, they do they don't feel quite right to me. I, I'm not it's not a it's not a it's not a judgment or a moral judgment. I just I, I take a step back and and I, I like the question you asked me earlier. Ask myself what it is that I'm trying to get out of running, and and how that changes if I take a pill that 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 uh, that makes me 0.1 or 0.5 percent faster and that doesn't it doesn't grab me that's not um anyway that's a that's a personal uh, i'll get down off oh, the no, that's a good i'm glad that you in. brought that up and and it's good to hear that you know you do think about that and it is something to think about because unless you are an elite athlete you know like you said knocking on the door of the olympics is that 0.5 i mean okay uh, maybe if you were you know 338 at uh, in the marathon and you that little bit of difference might get you under the Boston qualifier but realistically is it is it really worth you know all the money and time and um, stress I guess of knowing if it works or not <laughs> yeah and I, and I want to be careful not to uh, seem like I'm belittling certain oh, goals no. of saying that it's it's not you know oh if you're only trying to qualify for no, Boston that no. it's not worth trying I, I totally understand that and and I guess you know, in those contexts, I, I can I t- absolutely see the attraction of taking some beet juice. I just think it's worth thinking twice about and mm-hmm. and not letting it take over, not letting the pursuit of of uh, of uh, 
of all the ex- external forms of getting faster um, take over the the, the, the really satisfying thing, which is making yourself faster through training and through racing. Oh, no, I, I, I definitely agree. And I think actually, now you say that you've reminded me that a few years ago, um, I am, you know, a com- competitive athlete. I'm trying to get on the um, Great Britain world, uh, world team. And uh, a few years ago, I remember, I think it's all about balance. I remember I would, you know, try and do every single little tiny thing I could do, but it ended up spinning my life out of balance because I became obsessed with running. And like th- things like this are the kind of thing that could put you over the edge you know you're doing every little thing you could do to take off every few seconds you possibly could so I think I think you bring up a good point there that it could end up being something where you are obsessing over it and you're not like you said you're taking the fun out of running because you're no longer doing it because you love the feeling of it you love the wind in your hair you love the um you know the endorphin rush but you're now doing it because you feel you have to and you you feel like you want to get a performance and you're putting too much on the end goal rather than the journey. So I think that is yeah. a good point. And I think one, one other thing I would mention is there have been some interesting studies where they try and stack together multiple performance enhancing uh, aids. So, you know, you might find a study that says you get half a percent from beta alanine and you get half a percent from caffeine and you get half a percent from beet juice. So what happens if you take them all together? In theory, you should add those up and get one and a half percent. But what the studies tend to find is that they don't add together. You get you, you add you know, one plus one in in these cases often tends to, to be one. You ju- you still just get the one percent, and and no one's really sure what's going on here. Everyone knows that's that part of the benefits you get from these things is a belief effect. What what you might what you might call a placebo. And so the the implication is you add these things together, you only get one belief effect. And so I would say th- that's another argument for doesn't mean you don't take any performance enhancers, but pick one or two things that you think are important. And and, and, and it may be as, as simple as really believing in your coach and having your coach uh, instill confidence in you. But may, you know, maybe you're also getting confidence from the idea that you take your caffeine one hour before the race or something. And that's something that has always worked for you and makes you feel good. Find something, uh, invest it with power, but but don't keep always looking for the the very next thing and the very next thing because the more things you add doesn't necessarily mean you get more benefit out of them. Huh, that's very interesting. I, I actually would have wondered that myself. So I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up. So actually, um, while you are talking about caffeine, um, I've often wondered about this myself. I know some people swear by it. Others, uh, myself being one of them, kind of I stay away from it. I'm a little scared after once uh, taking it in my first marathon which didn't go very well. Um, but what could you explain a little how that actually helps uh, caffeine? Yeah, well, that's that's a, actually a very good and interesting question that, that people don't agree on. There's been all sorts of theories out there, you know, ranging over the last decade or two, things like caffeine improves your fat metabolism so you can get more energy from your fat, and, you know, that it's just a question of fighting mental fatigue, uh, but also you can you can take a piece of muscle in a Petri dish, and if you put some caffeine in it, you'll make it contract more powerfully. So caffeine has effects on the muscles, it has effects on the brain, it has effects on metabolism. Uh, most likely for endurance sports, the, uh, you know, when you're not talking about weightlifting say for endurance sports the, the primary effects are probably uh in fighting mental fatigue it it uh hinders the buildup of adenosine in the brain which is linked to to mental fatigue so it's basically uh 
uh, interfering with the neural processes that cause you to, to lose motivation and lose focus. Um, and this is, you know, this is exactly what people take caffeine for when they're studying for exams too. And, you know, the evidence for caffeine is, is, uh, it's not a hundred percent, like some studies don't find an effect, but it's, it's as good as they get, you know, call it 90%. Uh, it, it seems to have a, a good performance enhancing effect. Um, for a marathon, from in most cases, you want to take it before the race, uh, you know, maybe an hour before the race, give or take. Um, a lot of athletes uh, will take a little bit more in the closing stages of a race, and it may it's hard. To, it's really hard to test that accurately, but it, there seems to be some reason to think, in terms of the caffeine levels, that taking a gel with some caffeine in it, or as some you know cy- cyclists in particular, this is a bigger deal when they're racing for four or five, six hours. In the in the in the last hour or so, they might take take some flat coke or or a gel or or, or some more caffeine, just to to perk them up a little bit. But um, another controversial area is: do you need to if you're a habitual caffeine user, do you need to stop drinking coffee in the week before a big race? Lots of athletes do that so to make sure to to try and make sure they get the biggest jolt possible. Um, the evidence that I've Seen that I trust from a there's a guy named Terry Graham who's a researcher at the University of Guelph who's one of the world experts in caffeine and performance enhancements. His claim is uh, you don't need to uh, withdraw. You will get whether you're a habitual caffeine user or a non-habitual caffeine user. Just do your thing. Don't don't make yourself miserable the week before a big race by by swearing off coffee, and then just take your coffee the morning you know an hour before the race. Um, in terms of the dosage. Um, you know, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but but uh, the the general trend these days is that uh, the, a lower dose is sufficient. There's, I think, the equivalent of uh, one to two no dose pills. I think it's 100 to 200 milligrams for most people, unless you're you know a sumo wrestler or an elf. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's the kind of range you're looking at. A relatively small uh, dose will be enough to give you the benefits. And Again, I, I should say I, I've never used caffeine before races because I don't drink coffee, and it just seems like I don't want to try messing with something. But if I was if, if I was to really be focusing on performance uh, again uh, and, and times, certain time barriers, for example, caffeine is probably the first thing that I would add into my regimen in terms of a reliable, no unlikely to have side effects uh, kind of performance enhancer. Oh, interesting. And um, you did say about you said if you were going to take caffeine, it's probably better to have it beforehand. I just I'm just curious why why would that be? If you said about the mental fatigue, um, like say you are in a marathon, would it not have worn off by the time you get to the later stages? Like why take it before rather than you know at 15 miles? It, it takes a little while to uh, to metabolize. So the, okay. the pill goes into your stomach, then it goes into your bloodstream, then it gets to your brain. So you reach peak levels. I think it's about an hour after you take. Oh take wow, that long. Okay. Um, now there are there may be some some instant effects too. Like there's there's increasing evidence that uh, certainly with carbohydrates, they now know that just having carbo uh, a sports drink in your mouth immediately sends signals to your brain. So that but even if you spit it out, uh, you know, and doesn't go to your stomach. You still get signals to your brain about the presence of carbohydrate, which is why late in a marathon, you might, if you're even if your stomach's upset, you want to still rinse and spit sports drink. Okay. There may be there may be something like that with caffeine too. So it may be that you can get some immediate effects, but uh, in general, to to get uh, high, high levels of caffeine in your bloodstream, it does take give or take an hour. 
Okay. And then what about, um, I uh, remember hearing a while ago um, about uh, sugar. Like if you, obviously the gels are made of a lot of sugar, but um, if you have caffeine with that sugar, it kind of uh, prevents the crash a little bit. Is that correct from what you found? That's interesting. I, I don't know much about that in okay. terms of, uh, you know, I mean, caffeine will help to keep you alert, but uh, if you're running a marathon, you you probably shouldn't have much of it. You, you need to keep fueled. Mm-hmm. You know, the crash is if you run out of fuel. And ca- mm-hmm. if you're running out of fuel, caffeine may make the crash a little uh, less painful, but uh, the, the better thing is to not, not crash. <laughs> yeah, good point. So um, could you explain a little more about um, beta alanine, which you mentioned earlier, just because some of our listeners may not have heard of this uh, what it is and uh um you know what what you could tell us about what you found about it so, sorry you, you just broke up for a little bit can you oh. can you repeat the first part of the question <laughs> sorry yeah. um i said uh earlier on you mentioned about beta alanine and if you could just tell yeah. us a little about um what what it is and um how you know people use it like you said um as a performance enhancer early sure <laughs> Yeah, beta alanine. It's it's an amino acid. It's something that's found in in meat. So it's something we get naturally. Um, the the role it plays is is as a buffer. Uh, now, just to step back a little bit, another common performance enhancer is baking soda. The idea being that, uh, and this is specifically useful for people in middle distance racing. Uh, races between about one and ten minutes long. So if you're running the mile, it's it's most it's very significant or 800 meters, but less less so although I'll come back to this, but generally less so for longer races. Um, you're, as you produce lactate, you're, the, the acidity of your, your blood is getting more acidic. And so you can remember baking soda and vinegar, you pull them, pour them together, they make a big reaction. That's because the baking soda is counteracting the acidity of the vinegar. Well, the same thing can happen in your blood. You take baking soda and it will counteract the rising acidity of your blood. And that rising acidity, although it's complicated, may play some role in the, the burn you feel in your legs during a, a hard, short, middle-distance race and, and some of the fatigue you feel. So there is some reasonable evidence that baking soda can buffer the acidity uh, uh, that you feel during middle-distance races. One of the problems is that baking soda also tends to give many people uh, digestive problems. And so you, you may have be fighting the acid but you've got explosive diarrhea it's it's kind of a it's a yeah. wash the, the studies kind of are kind of all over the place um beta alanine is functionally accomplishing pretty much the same thing instead except well bake, baking soda is doing it in your in your bloodstream it's fighting the acidity in your bloodstream the beta alanine is right in your muscle cells and it's counteracting rising acidity within your mu- your muscle cells um and so there's pretty solid evidence that it can give you a, maybe a percent or two, um, I think, is the, the range of uh, performance improvements in something or in a race lasting you know, two minutes or four minutes. Uh, rowers tend to use it a lot, uh, middle distance runners. There was one study uh, a few years ago that found, I think it was in a one-hour time trial, um, which is far longer than you'd normally use this kind of thing for. Uh, people who took beta-alanine in a double-blinded trial had a faster finishing kick. So mm-hmm. so in, in a competitive situation, it may be that, because once again, that's something where you're going to have rising levels of lactate and acidity. So even if it doesn't make you faster during a half marathon, maybe it'll give you an edge if you're trying to outkick a competitor at the mm-hmm. end. That's still pretty preliminary. So I'd say beta-alanine is, is um, it's, it's, it's a pretty well studied these days in the last five years say five five to ten years it's become a well-studied performance enhancer but it's it's kind of 
mostly aimed at middle distance running as opposed to long distance. Although certainly there are um, plenty of long distance runners who would who would take it, and it's something you take over the course of several weeks. You might cycle on for three to four weeks uh, to get your levels, your muscles full of beta alanine, and then you'd cycle off for a few weeks and then cycle on again and just take it as a as a pill. Oh, interesting. And um, when you said about uh, you find it in meat traditionally, is this uh, is there like a big source of it in meat or is it very minute and that's why people take the pills? Or if people ate meat every day, would they be getting enough? Um, probably not. You know, I, 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 I'm going to... Uh... I'm going to say I don't have the details mm-hmm. uh, solid enough in my head. Basically, meat is a source of carnosine, and the way that carnosine is broken down into two amino acids, I think, in your in your blood, and then it's reunited in your muscles. And so there's a rate-limiting step where you have enough of one but not enough of the other, and beta-alanine makes sure you always have enough of, of both. Okay. Um, it, it, I would say from a practical point of view, I think – it may be possible if you were to subsist on a, you know, super paleo diet mm-hmm. or something that you'd be getting enough meat. But I think the studies I've seen suggest that uh, it, nobody, nobody is sort of naturally at the levels you could get at by, okay. by t- taking a supplement. Okay. All right. Good to know. So um, you have covered a range of uh, topics over the years in, uh, in your book, which I'll put a link to the show notes at runnersconnect.net forward slash RC52, in addition to the other things we talked about. Um, But uh, one of our writers who does a lot of our articles on Runners Connect uh, often talks about studies that are unlikely due to various restrictions and, you know, just being unrealistic. Um, But if you had a dream study that you could um, find out about running, do you have any idea what that would be? If you could, you know, (laughs) unlimited resources, you could take you know uh, a thousand people and use them in any way you wanted is there a dream study that you have that you yeah that's that, oh, that's a <laughs> that's a very interesting question <laughs> i to me one you know the studies that often get done are the ones where you give half the people a pill and half the people no pill uh, and that's because those are practical the much harder studies to do are training studies where you're trying to understand you know what length of interval or what length of recovery uh, elicits the, the, the greatest uh, adaptations. There have been a few studies like that, but there, if, to do a really good study that compared, you know, say a series of interval workouts, you know, uh, six by four minutes versus eight by three minutes versus four by six minutes versus three by eight minutes. So those all have exactly the same length of uh, to, you know, it's 24 minutes of quality. Um, doesn't matter how you break it up. I would, I would be really interested to, 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 to do something like that. Unfortunately, that doesn't, uh, that kind of study doesn't produce any pill that you can sell. So yeah. it's a lot harder to interest people in doing that study. But yeah, that kind of training study that tries to put a finger on uh, how these adaptations happen and what, what are the key parameters that we need to manipulate, I think would be interesting. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to think about what would happen if if we could do this, you know, um, and you could have find out which workout was the best. You know, there's so many different theories and um, ways of doing training. But um, if we could do that and we could um, find out what the best training was, I mean, it would almost take some of the fun out of it because, you know, we'd all be doing the same thing every day, every week. And uh, it's kind of fun to kind of even talk about it and kind of discuss with 
friends and I'm, sh- I'm sure you have the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's that study that I, the hypothetical study I'm talking about, I kind of think, you know, my, my gut feeling is that even if you had, you know, you did this study with 10,000 people and you did it for a long period of time. So you really had accurate results. You, you might not find any difference at all that I think the, the details don't matter as much, mm-hmm. but the, but then the, even if you did that study and you did it really, really well, the truth is, even the greatest workout in the world starts to hit diminishing returns if you just do it over and over again. So I have lot. I've 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 had lots of conversations with people who are like, you know what the most important thing is to run fast. You have to do the long tempo runs because I started doing those and I got this much faster. And this will be from someone who did all short intervals before, or someone else will say, you know, I I was and and this is my own experience too, like uh, adding in. Uh, you know, hard intervals with long rests, you know, like thousands with, with four minutes rest instead of always doing everything with short rest. That makes all the difference. Then you'll become fast for someone who's always done short rest. Whatever you haven't been doing is going to give you the biggest bang for the buck. So, and what, and, and, you know, conversely, whatever you have been doing, whatever you've found is successful, whatever, whatever has worked for you for the last few years is going to be working less and less. So I think it's really, I mean, I think that's part of, there's a lot of reasons why when athletes move to a new coach, they often get a boost. Part of it is mental or psychological, but part of it is just, they're getting a new kind of workout instead of sticking with the same program. So, so even this kind of study, it would tell you maybe what the initial best workout is for someone coming off the couch. But then let's say you decide that eight by three minutes is the best workout. Uh, if you have runners do that for two years and then have them do, you know, 30 second reps or, or half hour tempo runs and you're suddenly going to discover, wow, they get a big new boost. And it's not because that workout is better. It's because it's the one they weren't doing before. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That, that's, yeah, you've, you bring up a good point And I think that's something that um, is important to talk about because yeah, that even if you did find the perfect workout, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the perfect workout for you in a year or two. So it is good to always change things up. And uh, I think, that's a that's a good thing you've learned there through yourself or other coaches, and it's something that's important for coaches themselves to continually adapt their training so that you know they are giving athletes different things and constantly trying to improve on them. So I like that. You and it makes running that. more fun too, yeah. right? Like it, oh, it's I, I I certainly love doing the workouts that are my longtime favorites. Um, and it's hard for me to think of workouts other than the ones that I'm familiar with. But if I'm training, you know, if I'm training with a friend or say, for example, or if I'm traveling somewhere and they say, okay, now we're going to do this workout and it's totally different. It, it It's fun. It's mm-hmm. it's a new stimulus. It's good for me physiologically, but it's also good mentally to just to do something where you're not, you, you don't already have the template in your head to you know exactly how you're supposed to feel halfway through a, a repeat miles. Uh, if you're doing some sort of different workout that where the, the demands are different, it, it kind of wakes you up. And uh, uh, so I, I'm a big fan of, of, getting new stimulus when you can Mm -hmm. and uh, I think also because you never know with races how it's going to go you know every every race brings its own challenges so keeping those uh changes going helps mentally you prepare for different scenarios as well um and so do you have an area of running that is most interesting to you what is it that you feel most passionate about uh learning more and more about as you move on with your career is there an area uh that's interesting I, I you know I've, I've, I think having experimented with lots of running distances and stuff, I, I've come to the conclusion that, um, I, I was pretty much born to run middle distance and I, I'm not, I'm not really cut out for longer distances. 
from a performance perspective. But these days I'm really finding it interesting doing some longer races, uh, really hard trail races, um, even some orienteering races, um, not with any, like I do very badly at them, but, but, uh, but I'm enjoying that aspect of discovery for me of, of, uh, tackling challenging terrain and, and, uh, um, getting out into, into nature. So for me, yeah, it's, so I'm, I'm 39 right now. And so there's always the lure of, I'm going to turn 40 later this year. And oh, wouldn't it be fun to, to go back to the track and see what I can do as a master's track runner? And I may do that, that there's a big part of me that would love to do that. Um, but there's also a big part of me that's, that's looking for different challenges and, and different kinds of races and different distances. And just, uh, um, you know, I, I, I think the, there'll be a balance, but right now, I guess that's the area where I'm, I'm having fun is, is looking at these sort of almost not quite adventure races, but, but, uh, uh, um, races where the focus isn't on time, mm-hmm. but is on, isn't on, is on tackling a challenging course. Yeah, definitely. And would you say you're, um, studying within your, um, you know, your journalism and research is kind of channels along with what's going on in your own personal running life. Do you find, you know, say you were feeling fatigued one day, you said, oh, you know, maybe I'll look into this a bit more. Or is it completely separate? There is a little bit of that. Uh, what I find that the challenge is um, the questions that we, the, the questions that come up in training are often ones that, that, uh, that, people have tried to answer a million times and, and there's an important role for, for answering those questions. Um, but I, I guess the, often the way I, I decide what to write about is I keep an eye on the journals and look for things that are surprising and new to me. So there's actually a lot more sort of happenstance to what someone has, has decided to, 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 to research if they've done an interesting study. Now that, you know, obviously, uh, what I'm, uh, the things that catch my eye are are affected by what I'm finding interesting. So I just there's a study that I haven't written about yet. So hopefully this I'll have a chance to write about it before this mm-hmm. podcast goes live. But that that was uh, studying the foot doing a um, a foot strike study of Killian Jornet, the 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 mountain runner, um, which is so if I wasn't sort of interested in that sort of race, I probably wouldn't have noticed the study. But it's it's a cool study, so I'll, I'll probably end up writing about that. But yeah, I guess. I find the things that I end up writing about are often driven by what happens to be there and also driven by what readers are interested in, which, which isn't necessarily always the same. Uh, you know, maybe that, that's not quite what I mean to say, but, um, so, okay. With runner's world magazine, for example, which is, you know, the biggest running magazine on, on the market, mm-hmm. they, they very much, um, they always have an, an audience of, of relatively new runners. So, and this is a challenge that that every magazine focused on a, a niche specialty or a niche subject faces is that there's always people who want to know the beginning question. Yeah. And if you're someone who's been writing about it for a long time, you already answered the beginning question mm-hmm. three times. Mm-hmm. And so it's a challenge to think of new ways to answer that. Now on my blog, I'm not captive to that. You know, I, I'm, I'm writing for a different audience on, on my sweat science blog. And it's people who are already much more interested in the sport and have a good background and are looking at more subtle questions. But I try and, I try and be responsive to the, the questions that, 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 that people are interested in too. So for instance, the stuff about beet juice, uh, I found it very interesting when the research came out. And so I wrote a lot about it. Um, and then I sort of thought for me, it got to a point where, okay, I think we understand what's going on. 
but as it was catching on, there was still a lot of interest in, okay, okay if beet juice is, is interesting, exactly how do we use it? And, you know, what's the best dosage? And so I found there was just people wanted to know that. So I wrote about that kind of stuff because it, because there was a huge demand for it. So it's a long-winded way of, of saying that there's a few different ways that, that pull my, my research interests. Um, it's generally not a, a, a case where I sit down and think what's happening to, to me today mm-hmm. or how do I feel and I'll, and, and, uh, and then go and try and research that. Yeah. Right. And that's good. Again, variety is the spice of life and, uh, you're looking for different channels of ways of, uh, finding interesting topics. And I think, I think that's a good point to bring up. Um, so if, if someone wanted to find your sweat science blog, I will put a link to it in the show notes. Um, but could you just give us the address for that if they wanted to find that and follow it? Yeah, I mean, there's there's always a link to my latest blog from the Runners World main site, which is yeah. runnersworld.com. The blog itself, I think, is runnersworld.com/sweat-science. Okay, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that's it. Okay, uh, but you can always get there from the from the main page. Or I, I tell people these days, the best, the simplest way to find me is uh, uh, on Twitter. Uh, okay. which is sweat sweat science is my my handle and those are always links to my blog from there okay and yeah i will put links to those at runnersconnect.net forward slash rc52 if you want to check them out uh, for people listening so that's all the interview questions i had but i just have one other question uh which is going to kind of cut catch you off guard unless you have listened to some of my other interviews but um if you could give one word to describe what you would like to become accomplish or achieve this year what would that word be? Interesting. Uh, <laughs> That's I not your say, word, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Interesting would be a pretty good good word. I would like to be interesting. Um, I think that the, for, for my goals this year, actually, probably the best word would be stronger. Okay. Um, I'm a, uh, you know, the video is not going to be showing on this podcast, but I'm a very uh, thin, young, prototypical distance runner, and I'm I'm. I think both from a healthy living perspective, uh, from a healthy aging, from a performance perspective, and I'm also planning to do some some hiking this summer, some backpacking. I think um, I've been talking the talk for a long time. I need to walk the walk and, and, and get quite a bit stronger and really, really work at that. So hopefully by uh, by putting it out there in public, I will hold myself accountable and, and uh, put some put some meat on these bones. Yep. All right. Well, we'll check back uh, in a little while and see, have some before and after pictures of you. <laughs> <laughs> no so. two photos. That's a strict policy. Of okay. Mine. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for your time. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I uh, appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed listening to you. And um, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks, Tina. It was really, uh, really fun to have this chat. And there you have it. That's all from Alex and I today, but I want to thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed listening, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. I created a video to show you how, which can be found at the link at runnersconnect.net forward slash rc52. It's also on each of my previous podcasts. So if you want to go to any of those, there's also a link to that video right there. Favourable reviews help us towards our goal of being the number one running podcast and we would really appreciate if you could help us get there. Thank you so much in advance. I hope you enjoyed today's interview and I want to wish you a happy week of running.